Welcome to the Operation Crest Podcast. I'm Rohan. And I'm Eli. And we're the co-hosts of today's episode. Operation Crest is an effort from the 9th to the 7th Project to empower high school students like us to preserve memories of America's veterans and to share their stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Each one of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to be preserved for future generations, and you can hear other episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to stick around at the end of this episode to hear us reflect on what we learned during the following conversation. Learn more at www.operationcrest.org. And now, let's begin the show. Lieutenant Colonel Kate Clark was born and raised in the small town of Macon, Missouri. In 2000, she graduated from Austin P. State University and Army ROTC, where she was commissioned as second lieutenant. To date, Lieutenant Colonel Clark has completed 20 years of service to the United States Army, Missouri National Guard, and the United States Army Reserves, with assignments in Korea, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation Enduring Freedom. Lieutenant Colonel Clark is branch qualified in military police and logistics and holds a Master of Science in American History from University of Edinburgh, Scotland. Currently, Lieutenant Colonel Clark continues her service in the United States Army Reserves assigned within the Protection Division of the United States Army Corps of Engineers in Washington, D.C. Kate is an author with a publication in 2005 by Penguin Publishing of her memoirs entitled The Heart of a Soldier. She's been invited to speak at a variety of events across the nation, and presently, Kate is in her final year of PhD work at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, where she is completing her original research on the American Revolution. When not studying or hiking in Scotland, Kate resides in Enterprise, Alabama, with her husband, Michael, and Border Collie, Hawkeye. Kate, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, how did you find out about the military? I found out about the military from my father. Um, growing up in a small town, I wasn't really surrounded by the military, but my father had done ROTC in college and served at the time. It was a two-year commitment. And then he came back home to his hometown and he raised us, uh, I have four siblings, and he raised all of us to sort of understand that America was an incredible gift to live in this country and that in order for the country to continue um, being as great as it was, people had to give back. And there were lots of ways that he felt his children could give back. And he talked to us about various ones. But one of the ways that he said you could choose to give back was through the military. So that was sort of my exposure to it. Wow, that's awesome. And not a lot of people uh, know how much a gift in the United States is. No, it's a pretty great country. <laughs> Upon joining uh, the military, how was your boot camp experience? Well, because I am an officer, I didn't actually have boot camp. It's a little different when you um, do ROTC through college. You don't attend boot camp. Um, you have training when you that you go through while you're in college, and some of it's pretty rigorous. Um, but it's not the same experience as boot camp. You're not treated quite the same way because they're training you for different purposes. And um, so I, w I would not want the uh, enlisted core of the world. They would be upset if they heard me 
talk about my training in relation to boot camp. Um, I think military training is, um, it's eye-opening. I mean, I had very strict parents. <laughs> so I, you know, grew up having to clean and, you know, had a lot of standards in our home. Um, but uh, the military is different because you're, um, everybody's training to, to, to complete tasks the same way to be uniform, to follow orders. It doesn't matter if you're an officer or a private, you still have to follow orders. And um, so there's definitely adjustment periods for whoever you are when you're entering military service. And it's a distinct transition from uh, being at home and just having, even if your parents are strict, just having strict parents. It's very different. Um, was it your father you said that influenced you to join the military? Yes, um, he, you know, he didn't continue to serve after he gave his required two years, but um, he was stationed in Germany when he did serve. And so I think part of that was um, sort of instilled in some of, it, some of us a desire to see the world for sure. You know, having your parents early years were they were, my parents were married and living in Germany and um, growing up in a little town, that sounds pretty exciting because I mean, my town was about 5,000 people, so it's not a very big town to grow up in. Um, so there was a lot of things about the military that sounded very exciting, as well as the service part. Uh, where was your first assignment? Could you tell us a little bit about that? My first assignment was in South Korea. Um, I was straight out of my training, so every brand new officer has to go to a training whatever branch they have selected, whatever specialty job they've selected. They have to go do that, and then they get their first assignment. My first assignment was in Korea. And um, I was, I kind of didn't want to go to Korea because I had had orders to go somewhere else, and I really wanted to go there. And at the last minute, um, they changed my orders so that they could keep my husband, who was also in the military, so they could keep us together. So the military said, we're going to keep you together, but you got to go to Korea. Well, the military said that, but we still weren't together in Korea. We were pretty far apart in Korea, but we were still in the same country. So I guess that ma that makes a difference. But um, I was sent to a, um, a unit that was based in Seoul, which is the capital of Korea. And it's an enormous, I mean, I can't even tell you how many millions of people live there. It's enormous. So from a very small town kid moving to Seoul, Korea. It was quite an experience. Right. And I I'm sure it's a big change. Oh yeah, it really was. I mean, there was like things foreign to me, like a subway and, um, and the, you know, it's a foreign language and, um, but I actually ended up loving it. Uh, I really got to travel a lot in Korea. I got to travel a lot in Asia. I made some fantastic friends, both in the American military and in the Korean economy. I lived on the Korean economy. A lot of soldiers that get stationed in Korea actually live on base, but I was allowed to live off base, so I had my own apartment. Um, it was um, a little uh, elderly Korean couple lived below me, and they owned the apartment above them, and they rented that to me. So on all the Korean holidays, they would cook me food and um, leave the Korean food outside my door for me to eat. And so I was like really exposed to the Korean culture in a very unique way. Um, so that part was incredible. Um, my military unit was a, it was a good unit. We went to the field a lot, which was, um, 
you know, going to the field is basically going out and doing maneuvers in the field and you're living outside and you're living in tents. And um, it was some of the worst weather I've ever experienced outside of like the Middle East because it was so cold. Korea can be very cold. Um, and when you have nothing but a tent and a tent, <laughs> it gets pretty cold. Um, you know, we had, I can remember one time it was like, I don't know, we had like eight foot of snow on the ground. It was miserable. Um, but it was a really good unit. I had a really good boss, um, which makes a big difference if you work in any job, if you work for people that you like and respect and challenge you. Um, so it was a good, overall, it was an, a really good experience. Did you learn how to speak the language? Not really, although I actually, um, the American military has Korean soldiers that are embedded with them when you're in Korea because Koreans, Korean males are required to serve mandatory in the, in the Korean military. So if they have excellent English, they can get selected for these assignments where they work within the American military units. But part of their requirement to be in that unit is the American military has to provide them some additional language training. So I was selected to provide them additional language training. And I, it was really interesting. So I was their English teacher, basically. But in return, they would take me out on like little field trips out into the city of Seoul and teach me Korean words. And I would teach them the American words for some of those things. So I, I learned a lot and they were a fun group of Korean soldiers. They were like very disciplined, but they were a lot of fun, you know, like college age kids. Cool. So what other tasks were you assigned to while you were in South Korea? Oh gosh, this is like going back. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I, when I got to that unit, this is, this is somewhat typical in the military. I don't know if it's typical. It's not actually normal, I would say. Normally, when you are trained to do a task for the Army, then the Army puts you in that task. But when I arrived in Korea, they were short a military intelligence officer in a battalion. So they placed me in a, that, which, of which I had little to no training to do, which is having a good boss was important <laughs> because he um, helped put, you know, push me in the right direction so I could learn and, and do that job. So I was in charge of like, advising the the leader of the battalion and a battalion is you know 400 people or more um probably more than that actually probably about six or eight there but so i'm i was the only military intelligence officer in that out of all those people and i was advising him if we go to the field specifically to do maneuvers well in in korea particularly you're planning for what happens if North Korea comes across the border and attacks South Korea? How how do we how do we do that? So it's it's you know you're playing war games. It's like that's what the military does all over the world. You're playing a war game for to plan for an eventuality so that you're ready and nothing's ever going to happen like you plan, but at least you have some things in place. So my job was to advise the boss on hey this is what the enemy's doing because you know it's it military exercises are run kind of like a like you would assume a, a military game is run somebody's making this decisions on what the enemy's going to do and they're sending you um intelligence saying okay the enemy's going to attack left what do you do 
so you have to make those plans. So I'm having to advise the boss on this is what I think the enemy's going to do, and this is what the intelligence is telling us, that, that type of thing. That's cool. But I had no training to do. I had none. <laughs> <laughs> so you were tasked with pretty much telling your uh, your leaders what the enemy was going to do? Yes, for that for that particular job. Uh, there's a lot, lots of other things to it. Uh, an intelligence officer does a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of advising the commander on the world at large, what's going on in the world at large, where are the threats in the real world. Um, if you have soldiers that want to travel places, is it safe for those soldiers to travel places? Um, people need security clearances. So there's lots of, lots of tasks assigned. Um, you know, a brand new second lieutenant, which is what I was, um, when you're a brand new officer, you're a second lieutenant. You're you're like, I mean, I was probably 23, 24 years old. It's a lot of responsibility. What did it feel like um, moving so far away from home as your first assignment? Um, it was different. I had actually gone to college in Tennessee, and I, I was already married. So I had been outside of my home state for a while. Um, but not that far. I mean, it's at least when you're in the United States, you can get in a car and drive home. So it was definitely very unique because I think it's, I, I can't even remember how many hours it takes to get there, 18 hours, something like that on a flight. Wow. Um, and I think that's to get, that's just to get stateside. That's not even to get like to my home. Um, so it was very unique um, to be so far from home. And at the time I had a sister who was in the military as well. And she was deployed to Kosovo. So I remember specifically um, that was difficult because I had a sister who was doing something, you know, somewhat more of a dangerous job. And um, and then I'm also really far from. So, you know, there were two of us and we were both so far. and We're pretty close. So that that was more difficult. I mean, it definitely helped that I had my husband there, even though we weren't in the same place. We we're several hours apart. Um, that definitely helps. But I'm a very, I would say I'm fairly adventurous. So it, it was an adventure. I mean, if you're willing to make friends and go places, especially by yourself, um, you have to be willing to explore. Um, then overseas assignments are fantastic. A lot of soldiers don't really want to do that. They like to just stay on base um, because the foreignness of it, I think, can be intimidating. But um, the Korean people were incredibly warm and generous. And if you looked at all like you didn't know where, where you were going or what you were doing, somebody would come talk to you in English and be like, do you need help? <laughs> so it was a, it was difficult to be away, but I don't remember really suffering over it. I had such a wonderful time there. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, helping in Iraqi freedom? Um, so I was with um, the 101st Airborne Division, and we were on the initial invasion into Iraq in 2003. So we were some of the first soldiers to invade. So I arrived um, in Kuwait, and we sat in Kuwait, and we wait for about two weeks, I think. And we waited for President Bush at the time to decide whether or not we were going to invade Iraq. And that's one of the things that actually, when I think back on Iraq, I think 
like that particular memory stands out quite a bit in my mind because um, we just sat in the desert and waited <laughs> um, to find out whether or not we were going to cross the border. Um, and it's, you know, you've geared up, you're nervous, you're fearful, you're excited, you're, you're adrenaline, and you're just sitting there with all of those emotions. And I think it's probably very hard for family members too, because, you know, you, at that time, especially we didn't have cell phones like we do now. Um, so it's not like I could easily communicate with my family back home what was happening. And again, I was married and my husband was there as well, but we weren't in the same exact location. So, um, you know, there's a lot of unknowns and then waiting to get that, are we going, are we not going? And, um, and then, a, you know, a few weeks in the Iraqis started an airstrike into Kuwait. So then it seemed a little bit more real because you had, you know, missiles going on off over your head and you were having to, you know, seek cover different times, but it's, it was a very surreal experience. What was your, uh, tasks in, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom? I was um, a battle captain and a battalion uh, S1. So primarily I was the battle captain and I worked at night. So that meant, so every unit has a tactical operations center, which is where they, ta they track the battle, they track the tasks that are happening, they track the movement of what's happening in the area that you're, um, your, your slice of the battle that you're in charge of and um, what tasks your unit is required and you try to anticipate by, you know, there's multiple radios. Um, you have, you know, people monitoring the radios. So you're trying to anticipate the needs before they're, it's too late. Oh, we need to move bullets here. Oh, we, you know, all the different things. And um, so the Tactical Operations Center has multiple facets to it. It's, it's tracking the battle, tracking the assets, tracking the needs, tracking uh, what's going right, what's going wrong. It's, it's a lot of things. And, um, so I was, I worked at night, um, track, I was in charge of that tactical operations center at night. And that's pretty much what I did. The worst, I would say the worst part about it is I had to try and sleep during the day and, uh, we didn't have air conditioning and we lived in tents. And so, oh, wow. um, Iraq is very hot. And that was the hardest part is I just wasn't, I didn't get a lot of sleep because I could not sleep during the day. That, that's not a real hardship. There's a lot worse hardships, but that, that's one of the things I remember is being perpetually tired. Wow. Um, do you have any memorable experiences at your, um, during Operation Iraqi Freedom? Um, I mean, yes. What would be one of my most memorable experiences? Uh, I, I mean, probably my most memorable experience from Iraq is, um, we were, I think I told this story when I was at the 957 project, uh, we were assaulting, we were in Iraq and we were assaulting forward and, um, we had, because we were moving so fast, we weren't allowed to set up, um, basic necessities so you know at most we were digging a you know digging a trench to use for bathrooms we didn't have showers we didn't 
having very much water, so we were conserving water for drinking. Um, so we weren't really allowed to bathe and definitely not wash your hair and stuff like that. You know, you were... So we we finally got to a spot where we thought we were going to be there for like three days, and we had some engineers with us. So they actually dug and put up a really rough shack so that we actually had a bathroom, which was a big deal, even though a lot of people had to use the bathroom, the same bathroom. And uh, somebody had brought a toilet seat, like a real American toilet seat. And that was like such a luxury, like, oh my gosh, we have, a, we have four walls and we have this like makeshift toilet with a toilet seat. And um, I remember we, we ended up having to leave really quickly. And as we were leaving, um, I was one of the last vehicles to leave. And, and we were out in the middle of nowhere in southern Iraq. And um, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, you actually see a lot of the Bedouins, which are the um, sort of the um, Iraqis that sort of live in little tribes. And they, I don't know a whole lot about them, so I could be saying this all wrong, but they don't really have static lives. They don't have um, necessarily hard home, you know, hard walled homes and stuff like that. They're sort of migratory. And so they would always come up to our, you know, keep a distance, but kind of come up to see curiosity. They weren't dangerous. Um, so, so, or so I, I don't think they were, but anyway, as we were leaving this one encampment, we had to leave really quickly. I was one of the last vehicles to leave and the Bedouins came into the, our encampment as, cause we were all loaded in our vehicles. The vehicles are all leaving and it was me and another vehicle at the very end and we were taking off. And, um, I saw a Bedouin running out of the encampment with that toilet seat over his arm, resting on his shoulder. And like he found gold because he had found this toilet seat. And I thought I had two thoughts for number one. I, I laughed because it was such a comical sight to see somebody with a toilet seat slung over their shoulder. Um, but the other th part of that is I thought, I really am lucky. I'm lucky to be an American like that. Most Americans have toilet seats. <laughs> I mean, you, we can go buy toilet seats. They're, they're everywhere. <laughs> and, and this is, w most Americans wouldn't dream of like going into a encampment of dirty soldiers and snatching a toilet seat. Um, it just kind of puts the little things like that in perspective of, uh, about our country and how lucky we are to live here. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about your book that you wrote, The Heart of a Soldier? Um, it's just about, um, it's about, it's, it's, I guess, an autobiography up until the time that it was published, so 2000 five, six. And it's about growing up in a small town, my experiences in Iraq. Um, it's also specifically about my husband growing up in a small town. We grew up together. We uh, went to high school together. And it's about his time in Iraq. And um, specifically, it is about the fact, uh, it is about the fact that he was killed the day before we left to come home. So it's our two stories, small town kids, how they, how we ended up in the military um what we did he was a helicopter pilot um i was on the ground so it's it's those two stories is that what inspired you to write it your husband's career in the military i don't 
I don't know that I would say I was inspired to write it at all, <laughs> but I, um, I'm actually a fairly private person and not somebody that particularly likes to talk about myself and, um, the opportunity came to me. I was approached asking if I wanted to do this and I really didn't want to do this, but I have a very strong faith and I felt like, um, the opportunity just really wasn't going away. It was, I was, I was feeling like I needed to do it. Um, my, uh, husband's parents I'm very close with cause we, like I said, we grew up together in a very small town and, um, I felt very much that God was pushed, had put this on me to do. And I also felt like, um, it was something that I could do for his parents and his siblings and his, you know, family at large, um, because it was, you know, it's a tribute to somebody who gave everything for our freedom. Um, and I also felt like, uh, there's a lot of soldiers that die in combat and they never get the opportunity to be remembered the way that I was able to, to memorialize him. And I felt like I owed that because that opportunity had come to me. I felt like I owed that owed it to all the ones that would never have that opportunity. I felt like I owed it to them to do it. When did you uh, begin writing your book? Um, How long after uh, your service did you start writing it? So after I came home from Iraq, um, I'd say it was about eight, eight months, six, eight months, maybe probably eight months. Uh, this is a podcast that seeks like veteran stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. So can you share any stories that relate to these themes? Um, I think resiliency is something that is um, it's it's a word we hear a lot, and i I think a lot of times, especially younger people, they don't kind of know how to achieve that resiliency. Um, so I would say, I feel like the military is very much about resiliency because we have such a solid base of relationships. And I, I personally believe that one of the, the most important facets of being resilient in life is having relationships with the right people. Um, because because life is not easy um you're you're going to be tested and challenged in a variety of ways ways that you can't even imagine um i personally have a lot of faith with help uh, in god that helps in my resiliency but the other part is just having relationships with people that understand who i am uh, provide good guidance good advice uh, are willing to listen um, and for me, you know, losing my husband in such a sort of dramatic and, um, sudden way, I, f I feel like I was able to be as resilient as I was because I had such a strong foundation of people. I certainly believe that the opportunity to write that book fed into that because I was able to write all those memories down. But I had a, I had a, I had people in my life that were, supportive that were, um, you know, continuing to put joy into my life when it seemed like there wasn't any. Um, and, 
I, I think that's a real key component that the military a lot of times brings into that because we have such a camaraderie within units. And it's interesting because in the military, you can be in a unit, um, like I think back on Iraq, you know, we were in Iraq for a year and I was incredibly close to so many people. And that happens a lot in the military. You, you serve in a unit and you become incredibly close. You spend a ton of time together and then you get go on to a new assignment. And in many cases, you never see the vast majority of those people ever again. But that's okay because you find a new tribe. I mean, the military is very much like that. You keep a couple people, you find new ones, but you always have this group of people with shared experiences and memories and stories that help build you up when you need it. And so I think that is one of the most important things about um, my service in particular that has lend, lent itself to overall resilience. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, is there anything else you would want to share? I don't think so. Thank you so much, Ms. Clark, for having us. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> Best of luck. Thank you. So, Rohan, what did you think of that interview? I thought it went really well. I also thought it was really cool that she wrote a book about her career and her experiences in the military. I thought that was pretty cool as well, and how her book was mostly centered around resilience, being a person in the military. I also thought it was really crazy to think about how much we take for granted as living in America and being Americans. It's just toilet seats and just very minuscule stuff like that. Yeah, she told us a story about how one of the people living in Iraq took the toilet seat and then maybe have this perspective on how the things we take for granted living in America. Yeah, I thought it was really sad that some soldiers get overlooked and how she was talking about how some soldiers do great things and get overlooked for their actions. And I feel like as a group of people and as Americans, we should recognize every single one of these soldiers. I agree too. And soldiers give so many sacrifices and risk their lives just so we can be comfortable living in the United States and so people living in other countries can have peace. Thanks for listening to the Operation Crest podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's hosts were Eli and me, and our guest was Lieutenant Colonel Kate Clark. The questions were written by us, and the editing was done by our teachers. Until next time, see you.